This morning I want to read in your hearing one great little verse. It's found in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. I invite you to take a Bible and turn there. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word as this morning we continue our study of the New Testament letter to the Romans. And we find ourselves right in the middle of one of the greatest chapters of sacred scripture. Romans chapter 8. I'll read verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who've been called according to his purpose. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, the understanding, and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. There are many things in this world that we do not know. We don't know a definitive cure for COVID or cancer or the common cold. We don't know how to handle world hunger, global poverty, the AIDS epidemic. We don't know how the presidential policies are going to affect all of us over the next four years. The truth of the matter is, we don't even know who the president's going to be over the next four years. We don't know whether unemployment is going to rise or fall in the next 12 months. We don't know if Social Security will be around 30 years from now. We don't know what the New York Stock Exchange will do at the close of tomorrow. We don't know if gas prices will stay where they are or skyrocket in the foreseeable future. We don't know who will win the college football playoff. We don't know who will win Dancing with the Stars. We don't know who's going to be the winner of The Voice. We don't know what's going to happen on the most dramatic season yet of The Bachelorette. <laughs> we, we don't know what's going to happen this week on NCIS. And who among us has the mental energy and capacity to still keep up with the Kardashians? I mean, there are a lot of things in this world that we just simply do not know. And friend, if you come in to this place this morning and you are worried, concerned, uncertain about the instability of life, I want you to know that you came to the right place. Because this morning, there is one thing that we do know. According to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we know God works. In all things, for the good of his people, to those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Over the next few moments, I want us to examine those five phrases of that sublime, sacred sentence. The apostle begins by telling us that we know our God works. Like many of you, I cut my spiritual teeth on the King James Version of the English Bible. And while for some of you, what I'm about to say might sound heretical, I promise you it's not. There are times that King Jimmy is fast and loose with his translation. 
Take, for example, Romans 8.28. In the King James Version, it says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. At first read, it sounds like that King Jimmy is saying that it's the all things doing the work. All things work together for good. But you and I know that it's not the all things that do the work. It's the God behind the all things. So the NIV tries to get at that maybe a little, little bit more accurately when it says we know that in all things God works. Friend, this morning, I want you to know that God works. I mean, God really does work. The psalmist says that he never slumbers nor sleeps. He never takes a day off. He's never gone fishing. He's not the absent-minded professor. He doesn't fall asleep at the wheel. He never takes a day of vacation. No, God works. But not only is God actively working, but everything he actively does succeeds. So God works. There are many things in this world that do not work, but God works. And I wonder if there's anybody in the house who knows that our God works. I was hoping there may be a few more of you who know that God works, but that's okay. God works. Here in Romans 8, 28, the apostle Paul just simply reminds us that the God who spoke the world into existence works. The God who said, let there be light, and light came running at 186,000 miles per second works. The God who flung the stars into space, taught the sun how to shine, scooped out the valleys, heaped up the mountains works. The God who preserved Noah and the family in the worldwide flood works. The God who heard the groaning of his children and rolled up his sleeves and liberated the Israelites from Egyptian captivity works. The God who parted the Red Sea so the Israelites could cross on dry ground works. The God who preserved Jonah in the smelly belly of the fish works. The God who knocked down the walls of Jericho without a bulldozer or a crane works. The God who shut the mouths of the lions in Daniel's den works. The God who was there dancing with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace works. The God who stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth some 2,000 years ago in a starry night in a Bethlehem barn works. The God who said to a dead girl, Talitha Ka'um, which means little girl, get up. And she got up and began to run around the room, works. The God who unstopped deaf ears, opened blind eyes, walked on water, works. The God who fed 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fish, works. The God who went to the cross on your behalf for your sins and mine, was nailed to the cross, was buried in the ground on the third day, was raised from the dead, works. The God who ascended to the heavens with the promise that one day he'll return in like manner to rescue his church, works. This morning, church, I just came to remind you, I just came to tell you that our God works. Out of all the phrases in Romans 8, 28, this is the building block. This is the fundamental, foundational phrase that Paul wants to communicate to the church both then and now. Our God works. Our God works in all things. All things have to include pleasant things and painful things. It has to include Terrific things and terrible things. It must encompass comfortable things and chaotic things, great things and gory things. All things, it has to mean all things. That God works in all things. The all things have to include 
the suffering things of verse 18 and the groaning things of verse 22. In Romans 8, 18, the apostle simply writes that we do not consider our present suffering to be compared to the glory that is to come. We don't consider this present suffering as something to be compared to the glory that is to come. Now, what are, what are, what's the present suffering that he's talking about? Well, some have said it's personal to the apostle. For you know that the apostle Paul endured enormous suffering in his life for the cause of Christ. On five times, he was whipped with 39 lashes by the Jews. On three occasions, he was beaten with rods. On one occasion, he was stoned with rocks. The apostle was also shipwrecked and snake-bitten. He was imprisoned on numerous occasions. And maybe what Paul is talking about are the present sufferings that he personally endured for the cause of Christ. And when he thinks about all that he endured for the name and sake of Jesus, it, it pales in comparison to the glory that is to come. And maybe he does mean the personal problems. Or maybe the apostle is writing to the Roman church and he's talking to them about the cultural suffering. Historians tell us that at this time in human history, Nero was the emperor of Rome. Nero ruled and reigned from 54 AD to 68 AD. The letter that's marked Romans was probably written in 57 AD. Nero's already been on the throne. It did not take him very long to reveal his true character, for Nero despised the Jews and hated the Christians. Nero wanted to single-handedly stamp out that Jewish sect called Christianity, the followers of that Jesus of Nazareth. And Nero wanted to crush the first century church. So because of that, enormous persecution broke out against believers. It wasn't uncommon for Christians to be kidnapped under the cover of night, for them to be speared alive, and for Nero to set them ablaze in his gardens, just to illuminate his gardens at night. It didn't take very long for very many Christians to be filleted alive, to be speared and set ablaze, to cause many Christians to shrink back from the faith. And maybe what Paul is talking about, maybe he's talking about the cultural persecution. Maybe he's saying, we don't consider these present sufferings as gruesome as they are. It is, it is not worth comparing to the glory that is to come in Jesus Christ. For one day, Jesus will come and he will guide us to glory. He'll escort us to eternity. And what we will experience in heaven is far greater than any gruesome suffering we can experience in the here and now. And maybe that's what Paul's talking about. But regardless... When he says that our God works in all things, the all things have to include the suffering things of verse 18. And whether it's personal or cultural in the first century or for you in the 21st century, regardless, God is using your present suffering and he's working through it. He's doing something good because of it. Maybe it's your personal suffering Maybe it's your sickness, your sadness, your personal tragedy. Uh, maybe it's a problem at home with the spouse or, or children or in the marketplace. Whatever the suffering may be, God is using that 
Or maybe it's the cultural suffering of the American Christianity. Regardless, God is using all things, and the all things have to include the present suffering. It also not only must include the suffering things of verse 18, but it's got to include the groaning things of verse 22. In Romans chapter 8, verse 22, the apostle says that all of creation groans. In verse 23, he says we ourselves groan. In verse 26, he says the Spirit of God groans. Let's take those in reverse order. What does he mean when he says that the Spirit groans? This is the Spirit with a capital S in your English Bible. It's the third person of the Trinity. Father, Son, Spirit. And Paul says in verse 26 of Romans chapter 8 that in your weakness, when you don't know what to pray, the Spirit intercedes for us. The, inter the Spirit intercedes for you with, with moans and groans that words cannot express. This is the Spirit of God that's praying for you, brother. This is the Spirit of God that's praying for you, sister. You don't know what to say. You don't know how to articulate the prayer. You don't know because your, your vocabulary fails you. You don't know what you ought to say. You don't know how you ought to pray. Yet you come to God in full transparency and full honesty. And the Spirit of God prays for you. The Spirit of God intercedes for you. Now, friend, it's one thing for me to say I'm praying for you. It's another thing for your spouse to say, now, darling, I'm praying for you. It's still another thing for a family member or a coworker or a classmate to say to you, hey, I'm remembering what you shared with me the other day and I am praying for you. There's something about knowing that somebody else is praying for us that lifts our spirit, whether it's a pastor, minister, a spouse, whether it's a friend or a coworker, but all of that pales in comparison to the reality that the spirit of God is praying for you. Friend, right now, Beloved, right now, in your weakness, when you don't know what to pray, the Spirit of God intercedes on your behalf with moans and groans that words cannot even express. There's great comfort in that, isn't there? That the all things, it has to include the groaning things of the Spirit. But earlier, the apostle said in Romans chapter 8, verse 23, that we ourselves groan. We moan and groan, don't we? The older we get, the more we moan and groan. Some of you have already groaned right when you got up out of bed this morning. Your bones cracked, your knees, your knuckles, your ankles. Your, your bones are all out of joint, and the older you get, the stiffer you become, and you think to yourself, oh, I am moaning and groaning because I'm not getting any younger, I'm getting a lot older. But some of you have moaned and groaned not just physically today, but spiritually. And you know that the spiritual pain is far deeper than physical pain. What was done to you, what was said about you, the pain that was inflicted to, upon you by somebody else years ago, it is something that still cuts and still hurts. And sometimes when you get by yourself before the Lord, all those things come flashing against the screen of your mind and all you can do is groan. Paul says in verse 26 that we ourselves groan for we are anxiously, eagerly awaiting our full adoption as sons and daughters of God. We are waiting for 
this body to be redeemed. We are waiting for God to rescue us, to redeem us, to rapture us. We are waiting for God to redeem us from this sin-infested body and world. And, and in the meantime, sometimes when we suffer, we groan. We know what it is for the Spirit to groan as he intercedes on our behalf. Some of you know what it is to moan and groan physically and spiritually because of sickness and suffering. But in verse 22 of Romans 8, he says that all of creation groans. How does creation groan? What does it sound like for creation to groan? I just want to remind you of Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. That when sin was introduced into the world by our first parents, Adam and Eve, it is God who cursed the ground. So sin not only touches and taints all of humanity, but it completely marred creation. And I submit to you this morning that whenever there's a natural disaster, that's creation groaning. Every time there's a flood or a tsunami, a hurricane, a tornado, that when those natural disasters occur, it is creation that's groaning for recreation. It's as if creation is saying, how long, O oh Lord, till you make all things new? How long, O oh Lord, till you step in and save the day? How long, O oh Lord, until you do what you promised to do? How long until you recreate us? I think that creation moans and groans every time there's a natural disaster. And I know there are politicians and there are scientists who tell us that this climate change can be stopped, that climate change can be corrected. And can I just speak truthfully this morning that, that it's not climate change, it's climate curse. And the only one who can reverse the curse is God Almighty. There is no politician, there is no scientist, there is no smart individual or team of individuals who can reverse the curse. It is only God who can reverse the curse. And we are dealing with the ramifications of a totally depraved world. It is your sin and my sin. It thoroughly taints and mars our mind, our activities, our actions, our attitudes, but not just the things seen, but also unseen, visible and invisible. And sin has touched and tainted not only all of humanity, but all of creation to the point and when there's a natural disaster, creation is groaning unto God. And in our passage, when Paul says that we know our God works in all things, all things has to include the suffering things of verse 18, the groaning things of verse 22. Our God works in all things for the good of his people. That next phrase, for the good of his people, is very fundamental and instrumental in this sacred sentence. That God works in all things for the good of his people. Notice that Paul did not write that God works in all things for good people. No, there, there are no good people. There's no one righteous, no, not one. Paul has already built that argument in previous chapters that whether you're Jew or Gentile, male or female, rich or old, it does not matter. All of us continue to miss the mark. All of us fall short of the glory of God. There is no one who is good. There's no one who is perfect. There's no one who is holy in and of himself. All of us are completely sinful. So Paul does not say that God works for good people. 
I also want you to notice that Paul does not say that God works for the comfort of his people. One of the great heresies of the American church is the belief that God's ultimate desire is for you to be happy and healthy and wealthy and comfortable. And friend, that is not God's ultimate desire. God's desire is for you to know that God works in all things for the good of his people. That this God is working in all circumstances, good and bad, harmful and helpful. He's working in all things for the good of his people. There may be somebody listening to my voice this morning who wants to push back just a bit and say, but preacher, I'm not convinced that God is working for my good. I mean, I know I'm not good. I know his ultimate objective is not my comfort. But preacher, I'm not even convinced that he's working for my good. No, I think that there may be a divine vendetta against me. When I look at my life, I think I get the spiritual short end of the stick. When I evaluate the garden of my existence, I smell my life and it smells pretty rotten. So I don't know if God is working for my good. Someone may say, you know, this past week I really tried hard, but I failed the chemistry test. I got cut from the basketball team. I got a rejection letter from the college of choice. Marriage is not going well. The spouse and I want to have children, but we're unable to conceive. I always get passed over for the promotion at work. I'm the latest uh, victim of, of corporate downsizing. And now I don't have a job and I've got to pay my mortgage and I don't know what's going to happen. And I tried and I prayed and, and now, now I believe there's something wrong with my grandchild. Now I've got a sneaking suspicion that the cancer is back. Sometimes we take an inventory of our life and we think to ourselves, God's not working for us. He's working against us. He's not working for our good. He's working for our demise. And there may be somebody listening to my voice this morning who says, I don't know if this God is so good and I don't know if he's really working for my good. And friend, I just want to remind you what the apostle wrote. Romans 8, 28. We know, we know that God works in all things for the good of his people. But let me also add that it is God who determines what is good. I mean, I don't get to determine what is good. You don't get to determine what is good because your definition of good and my definition of good may be two totally different things. But God, who's always right, just, and holy, God gets to determine what is good. And in our passage, he gives us a glimpse of what God says is good. If you drop down one verse later to verse 29, it says that those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the likeness of his son, Jesus. What does God consider good when his people look like Jesus? What does God consider good? When his people talk like Jesus? What does God consider good when his people act and react like Jesus? What does God consider good when God's people start thinking like Jesus? When Jesus is being formed in us, then this is good. And God is going to use anything at his disposal. God's going to use everything at his disposal to transform you into the likeness 
of Lord Jesus. So that you will look more and more like big brother Jesus the longer you walk with Christ and the longer you go with God. Our God works in all things for the good of his people. What's the good of his people? So that God's people look like Christ. But here we must interject a legitimate question. Who are the people of God? Paul gives two other phrases. These last two phrases seem to complement and, de- and describe the people of God. Our God works in all things for the good of his people. Who are his people? Those who love him. It is John O.W. Stott who said that that phrase, those who love him, is a necessary qualifier. The promise of Romans 8.28 is not given to all people. The promise of Romans 8.28 is only given to God's people. The promise that our God works in all things is not given to all of humanity. It is only given to God's people. And how do you know if you're part of God's people? Do you love him? Let's be very clear. God creates all things, visible, invisible, seen, and unseen. God creates all people, but not all people created by God are God's people. How do you know if you are a child of God? Well, Paul says it's those who love him. Do you love the Lord? I'll ask it again. Do you love the Lord? I don't know about you, but I love the Lord. I love him because he first loved me. I love him because before I knew him, he knew me. I love him because of who he is and what he's done. I just got to tell you, I love the Lord. The world either is hostile towards God or indifferent towards God. It is only the church that is comprised of people who love the Lord. This promise in Romans 8, 28, that God works in all things for the good of his people is only given to the people of God. How do you know if you're a person of God? Do you love the Lord? The word love is agape. It's God's love, unconditional love, unmerited love, unending love. It is written in present tense. And in the Greek language, the present tense not only tells us when the action takes place, but how the action takes place. It not only takes place in the moment, but it's a continuous repetitive action. So it's not only that we love God at one time in our past, but we still love God. And I wonder today, can anybody give testimony that you love God more today than you did when you first accepted Christ? You love him more now than ever before. Your love for him has grown exponentially as time has gone on. And he's brought you to some stuff and through some stuff. And because God is so good, you just love him. You remember the hotshot lawyer that approached Jesus one day and asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus responded with the great Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commands hang all of the law and the prophets. Jesus said that, 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 that the pins upon which everything swivels and hangs in the Old Testament is this idea of love for God and love for, love for others. Love for God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. The reason we love is because God first loved us. 
we didn't just one day wake up and, and say, um, you know what, today I think I'm going to love God. No, God first initiated love. He, he's the one who, who set you apart. He sovereignly selected you. He chose you before the very foundation of the world. The Apostle Paul is thinking about this amazing agape love that God has for us that we are to reflect back to him. And in verse 30 of Romans 8, the Apostle says that those he being God predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. Paul says this is the proof that God loves you. This is the proof because he predestined you. He, he chose you before the very foundation of the world. He sovereignly selected you. He deliberately chose you like an adoptive father, deliberately chose his children in the first century. And God has deliberately chosen you, not so you can get the big head, not so you can swell up and pound your chest, but so that you can say, wow, what a great God. This great God has chosen me as flawed, as sinful as I am. God has chosen me. He's predestined you before the very foundation of the world. And the evidence that he predestined you is that he called you. And his effectual call upon your life produced faith in your life. Remember what we said, that the only way that anybody is saved is by faith in the accomplished work of Jesus. In Romans chapter 4, the apostle says that even Abraham and David are saved by faith. They were looking forward to the coming Messiah. We are looking back upon the Messiah. But all of us are looking and gazing upon the cross of Christ. So we were predestined before the very foundation of the world. God called us. We responded in faith. When we respond in faith, we are justified. That we're justified, we've talked about it before, is a brilliant, beautiful term. It means just as if I'd never sinned, but it's more than just the mere forgiveness of sin. It's to be declared innocent, both now and forevermore. So those who are justified are clothed and cloaked with the innocence of Jesus. So that when God looks upon me, he sees me as living out the innocence of Jesus. When he looks upon you, beloved, he sees you as living out the innocent righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then he says, those he justified, he glorified. Now what's interesting is that all four of those terms, predestined, called, justified, glorified, all four of those verbs are past tense, right? It's written in the past tense, as if the action's already taken place. And we get the idea that we've been predestined in the past. And if you're a believer in Christ, then you know that at one point you were called by the Spirit of the Lord, that you responded in faith, and at that moment of faith, you were justified both now and forevermore. We get that. But the last verb of verse 30 says that glorified in the past tense. But we won't be glorified until God takes us home to heaven. So how could Paul write about a future event in the past tense? I mean, I don't think that any of you have been glorified yet. I mean, you are still alive, right? I mean, poke your neighbor and ask, are you still alive? Most of you are still alive, and the vast majority of you are still awake, to God be the glory, right? So I thank God that you're still awake, and I thank God that you're still alive. So because you're still breathing, inhaling, and exhaling, because you're still alive, you ain't been glorified yet. But in verse 30, Paul writes it in the past tense. Why is that? Because sometimes throughout the Scripture, when the author wants to communicate something that he is so certain about, 
that even though it will take place in the future, he is so certain it will take place in the future, he writes it in past tense as if it's already happened. That's his way of underlining it. That's his way of italicizing it. That's his way of making it bold. He didn't have those capacities as he wrote this uh, Greek language. So the way that he would do it, he would speak about a future glorification in the past tense. You've already been glorified. Because we who are recipients of the love of God, we've been predestined. We've been called. We've been justified in Christ. And because of that, we have the promise that one day we will be glorified and we can speak of it with such confidence and assuredness that we can speak of it as if it's already taken place. This is the love that God has for us. And because God loves you that much, he simply sets you apart to love him. The evidence that you are God's person is because you love him. You remember that first uh, song that you ever learned in church? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Remember that? Yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. You You remember that, right? I mean, it's so fundamental to who we are as God's people. We know that God loves us. So in response, we love him back. Romans 8, 28 is a great promise that's given to God's people. For we know that our God works in all things for the good of his people. Last phrase. For those who are called according to his purpose. How do you know that you're a child of God? How do you know that you're in the faith family? How do you know that you're redeemed? Well, first and foremost, because you love God. But secondly, because you know you've been called by his purpose. Your life is not your own. You have new ownership. It's not property of self, it's property of the Savior. He's the one who calls the shots. He's the one who's given you life and purpose. He's the one who's given you passion. He's the one that gets you up in the morning. He's the one that sets the agenda. He's the one that tells you what to do. He's the one who shows you how to live. We live not for ourselves. We live for the divine call and purpose of God upon our life. We live because of who God is. And we know that our life is not a random collection of mistakes and thoughts And experiences that happen by chance? No. We're designed on purpose and for a purpose. If you've been with us here any length of time over the last five years, you've probably heard me say almost 769 times that when somebody joins the church, it is not by accident that you've come. God has brought you here on purpose and for a purpose. It's not only that you need us, but we need you. Because we're convinced that together we can do more for the gospel than any of us could do on our own. Anybody who's been here, you remember me saying that a time or two? I mean, about 769 times, I think, over the last five years. And why do I say that? It's because I don't know what else to say at the end of a service when somebody joins the church. And it just sounds good, so I just keep saying it over and over again. No, it's because I truly believe it. It's because it's embedded in God's word. It's right here in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Listen, friend, we know that our God works in all things for the good of his people. Who are his people? Those who love him, those who've been called according to his purpose. 
See, we don't exist just for ourselves. We exist for a greater purpose. And God is the one who orchestrates every step of our lives. So that even though God's people are carted off in shackles to the Babylonian captivity, it's the prophet Jeremiah who can say, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Are you kidding me? They're being carted off in shackles, in chains. And you're telling me that God is saying to you that I have good plans for you. Everything is going to work for your good. Is that what you're telling me, Jeremiah? And Jeremiah says, yep, that's exactly what I'm saying. Or Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, when he said to his jealous brothers, what you intended for harm, God intended for good, for the saving of many lives. Wait a minute, Joseph, are you telling me that God was orchestrating the whole thing when the brothers threw you into the pit, sold you to the Midianite merchants, and there you had to go and you had this false charge of rape that came up against Potiphar's wife, and then you went in prison for years and years, and then you ascended, and now you're like the vice president of Egypt, and you did that, and God was orchestrating all of that? And the answer, yeah, it's exactly what Joseph is saying. And the psalmist says in Psalm 139, you knit me together in my, father, in my mother's womb. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. All of my days were ordained in your book before one of them came to be. David, wait a minute, are you trying to tell me that when I was in utero, when I was flipping and flopping, in my embryonic fluid. You mean to tell me that I was in there without any consciousness, that God was orchestrating everything, that he knew the exact time when I would be born, that he knew every day of my life before any of my days of life ever came to be, that he knows my beginning and my end. He knows my birth date and my death date. He knows every day in between. He knows the content of this day on November the 15th in the year 2020 of our Lord. David, are you trying to tell me that God has orchestrated all of this? And the answer is, yeah, that's exactly what David is saying. And how can Jeremiah and Joseph and David make such statements? Because they know the truth of Romans 8.28. For the apostle Paul writes that we know that our God works in all things for the good of his people. Those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This morning I wonder, are you shackled by the cares of the world? Are you rocked by the experiences of our culture? Are you confused about what's happened in the past and what will happen in the future? Are you alarmed? Are you fearful? Are you thinking to yourself, we're supposed to be so smart, so advanced, yet we don't know a whole lot? We, we, we don't know much of anything. How can we know anything with certainty? Oh, friend, if that's you, can I just remind you, in the midst of all this swirling uncertainty and fragile instability, there's one thing that we know. There's one thing that we know. And this one thing that we know is really about all that we need to know. Because this one thing that we can know in a world of uncertainty and instability, this one thing that we can know when we're shackled by fear 
There's one thing that we can know when we're overwhelmed by sickness and sadness. There's one thing we can know is that our God works in all things for the good of his people, to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Friend, do you know this God? Do you trust this God? Do you believe in this God? For the God I am talking to you about today is the God of the Bible. And if you don't know him personally, today he is here to extend a hand of fellowship to you. We're going to sing a song. And if you don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord, if you've never called on him to admit to God that you're a sinner, believe that Jesus died on the cross, and and you've never confessed that Jesus is in charge of your life, then the moment we start singing, will you please get up from your seat, come to the aisle, and walk down to the front. If you're listening on our live stream, if this describes you and you've never accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, will you please contact me as followed by the directions at the bottom of your screen at the conclusion of the service? Because, friend, this, this is a life and death matter. Do you trust this God? I look around the room and I see many people who are believers. You nod your head in affirmation. You say, amen, I know you're a child of God. How do I know? Because you love the Lord and you're called according to his purpose. But maybe today, maybe you're just overwhelmed with uncertainty. Maybe you're just confused with everything that's swirling around you. And maybe today you just need to come and kneel at the altar and pray. Maybe you need to pray for that family member that you're going to be with here in about two weeks as you gather around the Thanksgiving table, and you know that uncle, you know that aunt, that cousin, that person is lost. You're not judging them, you're just inspecting fruit. And by their life, they're not demonstrating any fruit of repentance. And God may be using you to communicate the gospel, and that scares you to death. And maybe today you just need to come and ask for God to help, to solidify, to bolster your faith. Maybe you're looking for a church home. This is a great place for you to come and belong. As the Spirit of God moves, will you respond in obedience? Because I'll tell you this much. The God who is moving is a God who can be trusted. You can trust this God because we know that our God works in all things for the good of his people, to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Lord, there's somebody listening to my voice who's never accepted you by faith. There's somebody who needs to pray for a family member. There's someone who needs to join this church. Lord, as you speak to us, help us to respond. um, For you are a trustworthy God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.